in the lovely book by Alice Walker, came out as a movie in the 80s, I think I remember. There's a great line in it, and I will paraphrase the line because one of the words I can't use in church. The line goes, nothing makes God more indignant than we walk through a field of purple and not take notice. The book and the line points out the abundance of God's amazing grace with us through this wonderful, beautiful creation, and how if we choose to and are aware, we might, in fact, be able to perceive it, to see it. And really, it's not that difficult. At this fishing trip I went on two weeks ago with 15 or 20 irascible, scaly, smelly, cynical, and hardened, excluding me, of course, guys, out of all of that group, we were brought to a breathless standstill when the sun began to set over the horizon, which was the ocean. The clouds above the sun were in perfect harmony across the sky to give that sunlight bounce off. The atmosphere was in the perfect place to have this incredible, vivid, red, orange, purple sunset. We all just stopped fishing, turned around, and gawked at it for 15 or 20 minutes, pulling out our smartphones or cameras, taking pictures of it, lifting up words like, wow, amazing, unbelievable, and some other unrepeatable words. It was breathtakingly powerful, holding our attention as the sun dipped over the horizon. Finally, we shook our heads in awe and wonder, wishing that we could capture it better in our hearts and souls as easily as we did our smartphones. The feeling we felt was awe and wonder and especially Gratitude, gratitude, a deep thanksgiving for that which is given to us. For magnificent sunsets, this is not so hard. Jacksonville is loaded with them almost every week. Amazing. But for some things, we just miss it. After worship a few weeks ago, during a beautiful postlude piece by Lois I was chatting away with someone about the officer's retreat, and in the middle of my conversation, she held up her finger and said, shh, listen. And of course, I'd missed it, the moment of this incredible musical gift, and she reminded me of it. She gave me a new awareness of it, an awareness that, you see, demands our attention especially when we become to the abundance of the overflowing gifts that we have been so blessed with. New visitors and members come to me and other staff members all the time, praising the beauty of this sanctuary, the incredible wonder of our windows, the quality of our worship and music, 
the energy in our church, the abundance of ministry and missions that we provide for the city. For those of us who've been surrounded by all of this, we sometimes have lost sight of this abundance in that we take it for granted. The fact is that Riverside Church is abundantly blessed, not so much by the buildings and ministries, but in the lives and gifts that each one of you bring to this place. It should knock us to our knees in gratitude. Which brings us to this morning's passage. Every three years, this passage pops up on the lectionary cycle about the healing of these lepers. One of them only turns back in gratitude and give thanks. It always comes at the same time around stewardship season and Thanksgiving, of course. And the moral is made clear to us that we should turn back to Jesus in gratitude for all that he has given us and in return fall on his feet in thanksgiving with our words and our wallets. Count your blessings and respond accordingly. And this is the real message underneath that one. If we choose not to respond gratefully or generously this way, then the implication is that we are being ungrateful and there is nothing worse in the eyes of God or in the social circles that we live in than one who is ungrateful. Your strange aunt from Brooklyn gives you probably the most heinous, tackiest tie you have ever seen for Christmas, something you just hope the goodwill will take. And you better make a sound like you just received the Hope Diamond or your mother will rip you to shreds when she takes you up to your room. Plus, you have to write her a thank you note and then call her on the phone to thank her again, extolling the virtues of this beautiful tie obviously bought right out of the New York fashion scene. You're being taught how to be grateful even when you don't feel like it. Now, this is not a bad virtue to be taught, by the way. We all need those lessons, especially in our world of entitlement. For those of us in the top 1%, that's all of us, gratitude really seems a lost art. We have pretty much convinced ourselves that what we have is not gift at all, but rather something that we have worked hard on our own to earn. We could use a little more gratitude, remembering that even the ability to work and the job to work in is a gift, much less the truth that most of us were born on third base thinking that we hit a triple. We could all benefit from being more grateful. But there are gifts, even still, that don't deserve our gratitude, some that we have received that really don't need our true, sincere thanksgiving. Those gifts that have strings attached, that dangle from the gift like the tentacles of a Portuguese man of war. You better like this. Now that I've given you this gift, 
you owe me big time. I expect you to take this gift and to turn it into something much, much bigger. I'm giving $1,000 to the church out of gratitude, but I want to make sure that it's used exactly the way I tell you. In fact, mostly the gifts we give are this way, if you think about it. There are always hidden secret strings attached with an understanding at least that it must be reciprocated, at least with a thank you note, with some action of gratitude followed up with a verbal thank you several times at the end just to make sure we get the message. These kinds of gifts, you see, are always more about us, the giver, than they are the gift themselves or the one we're giving them to. So let's at least own up to that. Which is exactly why I worry about using this passage to instill in us a sense of gratitude. Because using it that way is really about guilt. And it's coming from the exact opposite direction, I think, than Jesus comes at it. Forced gratefulness is a little like that cartoon I saw in the New Yorker magazine of a sign on the boss's front door that said, These beatings will continue until morale improves. In this morning's passage, the sense of gratitude instilled in this one Samaritan does not come out of a sense of duty or guilt, but instead the byproduct of something else. There is no clear cause and effect here. And that something else is this unparalleled, unconditional, unmitigated grace. Unearned, undeserved. And this is how it works. On his way to Jerusalem, the text says, Jesus chooses to go through the region between Galilee and Samaria. Galilee was where he was from. Samaria, no one Jewish ever wanted to go. All through this summer, in studying Luke's gospel, we've been hearing about the Samaritans, the good Samaritan who pulled the man out of the ditch, the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus gave water to and spoke with, and now in this story, the Samaritan who comes back and gives thanks. Why? Because for Luke, the Samaritans were the hated outcast. The disestablished social order always, always the bad guys, according to the temple religious authorities. But Luke wants us to see how Jesus comes and turns that whole social standing on its head, in this case especially. Jesus is traveling between Samaria and Galilee between that which is established and that which is outcast. But you see, the in-between space between those two spaces is even more disestablished than either because the in-between space is where the outcasts are finally thrown when they don't even fit into the village where the other outcasts are. Certainly they don't deserve being in Galilee, they are lepers, and they don't deserve being in Samaria because they are lepers. They're thrown to the in-between places where only the scourge of humanity live and dwell. All right, substitute the word 
AIDS. Their lives were lived in the in-between places. You can't go back. You can't go forward. It's a kind of hell. You were neither here nor there. You know some of what it's like. We all do. It's, it's between marriage and divorce. It's between the time you get the diagnosis and the time that you hear it's in remission. It's, in, it's between the time when you hate somebody and you, and you forgive them. We all struggle with this time from time to time, but not all the time. You see, all the time is where the lepers lived. And on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus chose to go there. He sought them out, just as he seeks us out, who are outcast and broken and downhearted and hopeless and diseased with whatever dark thing breaks our own hearts. He approached them, the story says, even as they are pulling back from him because they don't want to contaminate him, afraid that he will get what they have, they still call out for mercy. Mercy. It's the same thing, by the way, that we sing after our prayer of confession, mercy. And what it literally means is a misericordia, a miserable heart. Oh, God, have compassion on us. And he did. Kyrie eleison. These words that we sang and the choir sang. This incredible gift of God that comes to us before we even ask. Seeing them, Jesus gives them one order, just follow the law. Go on your way to the priest. You see, in Leviticus, it was the priest who would declare that you were cleansed from your leprosy, in which case then you could be reinstituted into the temple and back into community. That was the point, being back into community. So on their way, the story says, they are healed. The act of going itself was an act of faith and hope, of course, a courageous act, and they obeyed Jesus' command. And maybe it's true that all healing starts here, with that first step after God gives us the strength and courage to make it, to move out of our diseased place with whatever condition we have and to move into health, health with only hope and faith to go by. The Samaritan, of course, saw more along the way. Seeing that he was healed, he stopped going forward. Turned back, can be the same word as repentance, and went back to Jesus, praising God in a loud voice, which is exactly what we are supposed to be doing in worship turning back from our own daily existence, prostrate at Jesus' feet in order to give thanks, we gather here praising God with a loud voice. Praise of thanksgiving, which, by the way, is the same word for Eucharist, that word we say about coming to the table, the Eucharistic table. It's about thanksgiving. And it was only the Samaritan who did it because maybe knowing that he was doubly an outcast, 
he was the only one who understood how much he did not deserve it. Even the other nine were Jews. They'd been born into some condition of entitlement, but the Samaritan had nothing. So Jesus pronounces him healed, not only that, but well. Your faith has made you well, he said, which is to say that not only has his skin cleared up, but so has his soul. To be made well is to be organically and cosmically and completely at peace. Shalom. And it all came simply because God in Jesus Christ chose to go through the region in between where the broken and outcast and lonely lived. And this one outcast chose to give thanks. I suggest to you this morning that Jesus and the healing grace that he bestows is right here now in abundance. Now. No matter how much of an outsider we may feel, no matter how much faith we have, no matter how much we have done or not done in our life, no matter how ill or broken or undeserving we think we are, the abundant grace of God is seeking us out right now to simply pronounce us healed and well. And there are absolutely no strings attached None. It's grace. It's given freely. And our response to this, if we're paying the least bit of attention, can only be gratitude. Think how our church, we're getting there, think how our church would really look if we took this totally to heart. Instead of coming to worship hoping that we're going to get something out of it, I just don't go to church anymore. I just don't get anything out of it. Instead of that, think, think if we took this to heart that we go to church instead to give our gratitude and thanksgiving prostrate at Jesus' feet, lifting up songs and hymns with praises. Instead of fundraising, that thing we do every fall where we try to raise enough money to meet the budget and the hopes for this church, we call it stewardship. Instead of that, we would come gladly, in gratitude, joyfully wanting to be a part of this. For it says in the Bible, God loves a joyful giver, which, by the way, happens to be the only kind I have ever met. Why is it that those who give most generously are the most joyful and those who are most stingy are not the most joyful? Joyful giver is redundant. Think how it would change if the, if the act of giving was based on gratitude and not guilt or not reciprocity or not something else. Think what our church would be like if, if we saw this church not as an institutional body called Riverside that does all this mission work. How much money do y'all spend on mission work, someone will ask. And the answer is not how much work we put in the budget for missions. The answer is 
Well, you have to ask every single member in this church how much time and money they spend out there in the world in the mission of Christ. Then I can tell you the answer. And the point I'm trying to make is this. Instead of seeing the church as an institutional one body, we see the collective bodies of each of us making up the body of church and that each of us is doing out in the world. Now we get a sense of it. We start seeing prayer, not as intercessory prayer or petitionary prayer, although that's okay, but first as an, as an opportunity to express gratitude and thanksgiving. Every time you feel that anxiety, as I've said before, write down five specific things you're grateful for. Feel it in your heart and then lift that up to God. It changes things. We see this church as we are supposed to be and to do, and we, you see, do so because we are the Samaritan. We're the Samaritan who has, by God's grace, been made well, and at our sheer best, out of gratitude, we turn back to Jesus and offer up praise. So, okay, if you're not feeling particularly grateful these days, then I think it might be because we are not paying close attention enough to the ginormous abundance of grace that surrounds us. It's everywhere. Take notice, and I suspect we will start to feel what being well is all about. With grateful hearts, let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.